This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Norman Swan here with this week's health report, and it's devoted to the outbreak of the novel coronavirus starting in the Hubei province of China and is now spreading globally. Already there's misinformation, disagreement among the experts about infectivity, racism associated with fear of the unknown, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people wearing face masks, almost certainly uselessly, and unproven treatments being tried out. Late last week, we asked for your questions and we got a strong response. Your questions ranged from wanting to know more about the origins, the real risks, whether there's a story that's being kept from us, to whether control measures will actually work. So today, we'll try to give you some answers, plus background, what's known to date, whether there are already drugs which might help, and the technology that might lead to an early vaccine. First, though, here's James Bullen with a chronology of how this has evolved so far. The first cases of a pneumonia of unknown cause, what we've come to know as novel coronavirus 2019, were detected in the city of Wuhan in central China about the 8th of December last year. It's certainly possible, as some infectious disease experts have pointed out, that the virus was circulating before that date and just hadn't been picked up. Workers at a food market, which also sold live animals, were among the first identified cases. That's given rise to the idea the virus may have jumped from an animal at the market to humans. According to the New York Times, local Chinese authorities silenced a doctor who tried to raise the alarm about the mysterious illness and downplayed the risk as early cases appeared. It wasn't until the end of December that China's authorities notified the World Health Organization of the situation. At that time, there were 44 confirmed cases. Following up on investigations into a viral pneumonia outbreak in central China, Authorities in Wuhan have ordered a local seafood market with apparent connections to the outbreak to shut down. That's January 1st. On January 9th, there's the first reported death from coronavirus, a 61-year-old man from Wuhan. And on January 13th, the first confirmed case of coronavirus is reported outside China, in Thailand. Travel restrictions have been imposed in Wuhan and other cities across China at the centre of a viral outbreak that's killed 18 people. Wuhan is put into lockdown on the 24th of January as the number of people infected escalates. Less than a month after the original reports to the WHO, there are more than a 1,000 official cases. And new modelling reported in The Lancet over the weekend suggests the actual number of cases at that time may have been far higher, as many as 75,000 in Wuhan alone. That same paper suggests the number of people with coronavirus is doubling every week. The first Australian case of coronavirus has been confirmed, with a man being held under isolation in a Melbourne hospital in a stable condition. The Victorian case is announced January 25th. At this point, we're at 2,000 cases worldwide. And more cases have since been found in Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia and Victoria. Last Friday, the World Health Organization's Director-General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus declared the coronavirus a public health emergency of international concern. Official global numbers had nudged 11,000. The main reason for this declaration is not because of what is happening in China, but because of what is happening in other countries. Our greatest concern is the potential for the virus to spread to countries with weaker health systems and which are ill-prepared to deal with it. Today, the first death from coronavirus outside of China was reported. 
a 44-year-old Chinese man who had travelled from Wuhan to the Philippines. James Bullen. And as we go to air, there are more than 17,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus and more than 350 deaths. The Department of Health's last coronavirus update says there are now 12 confirmed cases here, four in New South Wales, four in Victoria, two in South Australia and two in Queensland. Let's delve now into what we know and don't know about where this novel coronavirus came from and how it's behaving. Professor Raina McIntyre is head of the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. I spoke to her earlier. It's a pleasure, Norman. What, if anything, surprised you most about this epidemic? Well, how quickly the case numbers started to rise. We were all watching, you know, this unknown pneumonia from late December through to about mid-January. And it seemed to stay stable at around 40 or 50 cases. And then all of a sudden, around the 18th of January, the cases started to really surge and they've continued to increase every day since. But was that a real surge, given that China's been slow to report? Yes, no doubt there would be some reporting that happened later. It's also felt that initially they had quite a tight case definition that only included pneumonia and that might have led to the apparent, you know, unchanging numbers. So they weren't including milder cases in counting at the beginning. Do you think we'll ever know when it truly began? Well, the genetic data actually does give some clue that the virus probably jumped species from an animal to human in about November or December. How do you tell that from the genes? They look at the evolution and they put it on a phylogenetic tree and compare it to, which is like an evolutionary tree, uh, and then they compare it to other related viruses. And do you think this live market story, live animal market story is real, that it jumped species in an animal market from bats to something or other? It seems to have arisen from that market. The interesting thing is that they took about 500 environmental samples from the market and 35 of them were positive for the virus, but not in the parts where the wild animals were sold, from what I understand, but in the seafood section. The experts feel maybe it's got something to do with the water rather than fish. It's very unlikely to have come from fish. So in other words, this is surface and water contamination rather than animals? Nobody knows, just that the surfaces were contaminated. When a new virus emerges, it can be quite unstable and mutate quite quickly before it settles into an equilibrium with humans and the environment. How quickly is this mutating? Not very quickly. It is an RNA virus, which do tend to mutate more than the DNA viruses, but coronaviruses are fairly slow to mutate, and that's certainly confirmed by the genetic picture. So in other words, the mortality rate and the infectious rate you think will stay stable? No, that's a different matter. We don't actually have a good handle on the mortality rate and the infection rate, especially not the infection rate. There's been varied estimates of the mortality rate from 2 to 11%, depending on which estimates and which studies you look at, but the data are still not very complete. What's the biology here between coronaviruses, bats and other animals and the species jump? There's a range of different coronaviruses, some of which only affect animals and some which affect humans and animals. The most common coronaviruses that affect humans just cause a common cold. But there's been two severe ones that have jumped from animal to human in the past, and those are SARS and MERS coronavirus. And now there's this third virus. Do many of us have coronavirus already? If we've had a cold, that we've already been infected with coronavirus? Yes, not this coronavirus, but a coronavirus. Which suggests like the flu, there's not much cross-immunity. Probably, yeah. 
And the transmission dynamics here, the key number is how many people can an individual infect? I think influenza is down about 1.1, 1 1.2. Measles is up at 12. They're saying this one's between 2 and 3. Do we know that for sure? Influenza is actually around 2. Oh, sorry, uh, I thought it was less than that. The best estimate so far is 2.2 for the R0 of this virus. There's been a range of modelers estimating the R0 and some of the estimates are as high as 6. Some are lower than 2. But the only estimate of R0 that came from data that included the date of symptom onset suggests it's 2.2. So that's the estimate I'd put the most money on. The key here is whether or not it's infectious during the incubation period, in other words, before symptoms arrive. And my understanding is the incubation period could be anywhere between two or three days, maybe an average of five through to 12 or 13 days. What is the evidence that it can be transmitted during the incubation period? There was an outbreak in Germany that shows that it was transmitted likely in the incubation period and quite rapidly. In that outbreak, a lady from Wuhan came to Germany to run a workshop. She infected a man who attended that workshop, but she didn't have symptoms at the time. She got sick on the plane flying back to China. But the guy that she infected then infected somebody else within a day of his being exposed. That could be a game changer. Yes, because if something is transmitted asymptomatically, then it becomes much harder to control. Can it be controlled at all apart from a vaccine? Yes, there are lots of public health measures that can control even an epidemic where there's asymptomatic transmission. First is identifying cases really rapidly, so having good surveillance and then isolating them so they can't infect others, tracking all their contacts straight away and monitoring the contacts for development of symptoms. And if they develop symptoms, isolating them. And then the general infection control measures like hand washing and if you're a healthcare worker, personal protective equipment. Given that it started in a live food market, can you catch this by swallowing the germ? It's unlikely to have been through swallowing what, from what we know about the other coronaviruses. It's probably a mixed mode of transmission. Probably there's contact transmission where you touch a contaminated surface and then you contaminate your own face, your mouth, your nose or your eyes with your hand when you're rubbing your face. Secondly, by large respiratory droplets and thirdly, by the airborne route. The modelling from the MRC unit in Britain and Hong Kong suggests that late last week there could have been as much as 80,000 people, as many as 80,000 people infected. Do you think in Australia there's a reservoir that we're not detecting, given it developed early, that there could be more in Australia that we're not seeing yet or have seen and just been misdiagnosed by GPs thinking it's just the cold? It's certainly possible. We've been pretty vigilant in terms of the surveillance and screening, but it's possible. So where do you think it's going to go from here? We're a land girt by sea, relatively easy to control in some ways, but globally, is this going to slip out of control, unlike SARS? It's possible, although unlike SARS, we haven't seen large epidemics take off in other countries. So in SARS, we saw epidemics in Vietnam, in Toronto, in Singapore and Hong Kong, particularly hospital outbreaks. We haven't seen that yet. There's been a small outbreak in Germany, so we really need to watch and see. But certainly on the indication of the modelling studies, there could be more cases than we've detected. However, that was speculated with MERS coronavirus as well. But when they did serology on people, the sero surveys tested everyone's blood, they didn't find that. They actually found very low levels of seropositivity. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how concerned are you? 7. 7. 7 on your scale is pretty high? Pretty high, yeah. And what worries you? 
Well, the fact that the cases are still increasing, I would only start to relax a little bit when I saw the cases starting to decrease. And it's because case fatality rate is much higher than anything we've seen any time recently that has the capability of spreading through the community. And that would be a major impact on our health system if it did pan out that way. So we'll watch closely, Rana. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Professor Rainer McIntyre is head of the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. This is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. Alan Cheng has been following the coronavirus outbreak closely. He's a vested interest as he's an infectious disease physician at one of our major hospitals, the Alfred in Melbourne, as well as being Professor of Infectious Diseases Epidemiology at Monash University. I also spoke to him this afternoon. No worries, thanks. We've got a few questions from the audience before we came to air. One is, how should hospitals prepare for an epidemic of this virus? And some modelling suggests that if it really went wild in Australia and 10% of the population got infected, given the translation into severe respiratory syndromes, it could be over a three-month period, 80,000 people presenting to casualties across the country. All hospitals are looking at their plans at the moment. All hospitals have planning for things like pandemic influenza. The sort of things we're looking at are our systems, so signage to identify people who might be unwell. Some hospitals will require things like fever clinics or flu clinics to safely see and assess patients with these sorts of infections, and then things like their stocks of personal protective equipment. So there's been about four cases in Victoria so far as we go to air. There are one hospital seen three patients and the other one has got one confirmed case. So what's the clinical picture? There's a real spectrum of disease. So some of them have been well enough to get a swab and go home and then stay in home quarantine, whereas other cases have been a lot more unwell and required admission to hospital. The ones that have come in, you know, some of them aren't too unwell, but do have quite significant chest X-ray changes that look like pneumonia. They seem to get worse over the first couple of days or the first week or so of illness. So the illness, it does tend to peak in the, in the second week of the illness. This is actually quite a long-lasting symptomatic period. Yeah, I would emphasise it's not for all patients. So some patients have certainly been well enough to go home, but there are other patients that have had to come into hospital. With SARS, it seemed to be an equal opportunity virus, although it did affect people who were a bit older and had more problems such as heart failure and so on. To what extent is coronavirus affecting people seriously according to how much illness they've got already versus it's a crapshoot? It's really hard to know. It does seem to affect older people. And a lot of the ones that have been described have had chronic illnesses like hypertension, where you probably wouldn't expect that to be a risk factor for getting a respiratory virus like this one. So I think it probably is more a function of the age group that it's affecting. Is there anything particular about the respiratory symptoms that give you a clue? No, I think in MERS coronavirus, for example, um, there seemed to be a lot of people with kidney failure that were involved. And that probably was partly because people with kidney failure have decreased reserve of capacity in their body systems. With the SARS epidemic, there was a lot of emphasis put on the fact that you could pick it up from surfaces. There was a, an apartment block in a hotel where it seemed to be that you just touched the banister and you got SARS. At least that's what was reported in the literature. To what extent, from your observation of what's happened to date, do you think you pick this up from surfaces as opposed to somebody sneezing in your face? That's really unclear to us at this stage, and I think that's something that's really important to sort out. I think the one in with SARS in Hong Kong, it was a, a sort of a very strange a situation where I think it was thought that there was defective plumbing in the building and then it spread through that way. But clearly surfaces were important to some extent, and then there was respiratory spread to, to some extent as well. As a clinician, 
If you got a patient, would you be trying out these HIV drugs on a patient in Victoria? Oh, look, I think it would depend on how unwell they were. There's certainly patients that are not very unwell. I wouldn't want to give them side effects where they weren't particularly unwell to start with and I wouldn't be trialling anything unusual on them. I think with some of the other quite unwell ones, sometimes we throw the kitchen sink of treatments at people trying to see if we can make them better if they're certainly not going in the right direction. So I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Ryan McIntyre a little while ago, which is how scared are you? Or do you think we're overcooking this? I think it's really hard to know. I think the crude case fatality rate, so what's the proportion of people that are reported to have died from this, is sitting at about 2%. But there's uncertainties both ways. So it may be that you know they're only picking up the most severe cases and not testing or missing the mild cases, in which case the case fatality ratio would be lower, meaning that less people die than we think. But equally, not everyone who's gotten sick yet has died from it. So, you know, I said before that it's an illness that gets worse in the second week and we're only sort of a couple of weeks into this outbreak. So it may be actually that the, the proportion of people that die actually is is higher. It probably is most likely that it's on the lower side of below 2%, but that's still a pretty significant illness for in a population. If 1% or even half a percent of people who got it died, then that potentially is a lot of death. So at this stage, we think it is a disease that's worth trying our best to keep out and to do things like quarantine and so on to try and prevent it spreading. One of our listener comments was that it's very hard to get doctors to wash their hands. So compliance is low there. If we're relying on home isolation and home quarantine, are people going to be compliant with that in, a, in an atmosphere where people just by and large aren't compliant? And I would include myself in that. Can we rely on that as a public health measure? Yeah, I mean, I think public health interventions in general, they're partial, they're not absolute. It's not really feasible to police self-quarantine of thousands of people at any one time. About, you know, hand hygiene in hospitals, there's nothing like this sort of thing to really change people's behaviour and particularly patients that have suspected coronavirus, I can tell you that compliance with hand hygiene is going to be very, very high. So when it comes to doctors protecting nurses protecting themselves, they wash their hands. <laughs> Quite possibly, but side effect of that hopefully is that, you know, they'll protect the other patients as well. Alan, the modelling has been a bit confusing, I suppose. You've got modelling from Hong Kong and from the UK, which suggests that there could be 80,000 people in China infected rising rapidly with a doubling rate of every six days, which suggests that this is really quite an infectious disease, regardless of what the R not might be. What do you think of the modelling? Probably the best way to describe it is that they're sort of take everyone's taking slightly different approaches. And where those estimates of quite important parameters are the same, we might be a bit more confident that that is probably true. It means that it's a moderately infectious virus with a doubling time that's in the order of about a week. And I think we can sort of settle on that and then watch how things develop over the next few weeks to know if control efforts have been successful. The parameter that everyone's been struggling with at the moment is case fatality or, or the proportion of people that will die of this. And I think that's a particularly difficult one to nail down. Alan, thank you. No worries. Alan Cheng is an infectious disease physician at the Alfred in Melbourne, as well as being professor of infectious disease epidemiology at Monash University. The pace of the science in this outbreak has been extraordinary. The Chinese shared the genetic sequence reasonably early, allowing the genetic detection test, or PCR, to be developed around the world, making definitive diagnosis much easier. 
What the Chinese didn't share was the actual virus, which makes the announcement last week that they'd grown the virus at the University of Melbourne's Doherty Institute an important world first. Professor Sharon Loon is director of the Doherty Institute. Welcome to the Health Report. Hi, Norman. First of all, my assumption there that the, the diagnosis is definitive using this genetic amplification test. Is it definitive? They're pretty good, actually, when we look at for the genetic code or use something called PCR to diagnose an infection. Um, you can design the tools you use to detect the whole family of viruses or the specific Wuhan coronavirus that we're talking about. So they are pretty good, but every test is not perfect. Some tests um, diagnose a positive when you don't have the infection or miss an infection. So we, as it, with new tests, we take a while to understand how robust it really is. But generally, PCR-based tests are highly specific and I mean, pretty accurate. I mean, it's revolutionised HIV diagnosis because you're able to detect tiny, tiny amounts of the virus in your body. Well, actually, we don't use the PCR-based tests oh, for diagnosis. No, we, we largely use antibody tests showing that your body's made a reaction and that has an extremely high... When we look at testing, we look at two things, sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity determines how many positives you identify when someone has it and specificity says how often you might make a mistake or diagnose someone with it when you don't have the actual infection. So we use an antibody test for diagnosis, but we do use PCR tests to track um, how people do on treatment. And we do use PCR-based tests for very early diagnosis, which we want to know when we're, say, screening the blood supply for HIV. So we don't, we use these PCR-based, at the moment we don't have a blood-based antibody test showing you've been exposed to the end coronavirus, the new coronavirus. So that's why we're using PCR. So why was it so important to grow the virus if you've got the genetic sequence? Yeah, growing the virus um, opens a whole range of new um, tools allowing you to develop better diagnostics, antivirals, and vaccines. And the key thing is that once you can grow the virus in the laboratory, you can test the efficacy of different drugs and whether they inhibit growth. You can develop an animal model and see if those drugs work in an animal model. And then you can also use it to design our vaccines. And very importantly, you can use it to design um, tests showing that your body has seen that virus before or what we call an antibody blood test or a serology test, the, the thing you have when you have an HIV test. So growing the virus and then using it as a tool for each of those areas um, is tremendously um, important in advancing the field. And how important is security around the virus? I mean, I mean, biological security, so you don't catch it when you're working with it. Well, we, you, we grow this, we have different levels of security in laboratories from, you know, level one through to level four. Um, level four is the highest level of containment where you're wearing a space suit and have a separate oxygen supply. And we use that level for something like Ebola or, or for a virus that um, has a very bad outcome and you have no treatments for it. So, um, SARS, MERS and the end coronavirus are um, grown typically in level three, which gives the um, operator a lot of protection. The airflow is designed to minimise transmission. So it's this level down, but it's still not a, a, um, a capability that every lab in Australia has, for example. It's the same um, uh, level of containment that we use, for example, when we're dealing with HIV. 
How important is sharing? I noticed you shared the virus quite quickly, or you offered to share it. Um, the Chinese have been, it's been mixed how much the Chinese have shared. They haven't shared their virus. Is there a competitive element here, or is it simply that everybody's got to have a go because it's such an important epidemic? I don't know why the Chinese haven't shared the virus. I can't comment on that. Um, I know that we felt, and particularly um, Mike Catton and Julian Drews, the um, two scientists at the Doherty that isolated the virus, felt very strongly that we needed to share it for the public good, and I fully support that decision. Um, and, yes, there is an element of competition because you can do a lot of good things with the virus and understand a lot of aspects of the infection which can lead to you know, um, some nice publications, etc. But in a setting of an outbreak, the most important thing is to help the public health response. And this will significantly advance development of diagnostics, antivirals and vaccines. So a wonderful um, thing for the Australians to do, I think, on the global stage. So what's this technology that they're talking about at the University of Queensland and elsewhere, which allows rapid vaccine development? Because it used to take years for a vaccine to be developed and we still don't really have an effective one for HIV. Yeah, in response to um, the significant Ebola outbreak in 2014 in West Africa, um, there has been a global initiative to develop what we call platform technology, so technologies that will work for multiple infections. Um, the platform technology is optimised with an infection that we know about and then can be rapidly applied to a new infection. And um, an organisation called CEPI, or the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, is a funder of vaccine platforms. The University of Queensland were one of several um, groups of investigators developing different platforms. And actually the requirement from CEPI was that this platform could be rapidly operationalised for a new infection and to deliver a vaccine within 16 weeks, which is pretty incredible. Um, the platform that uh, Queensland and others are working on may well be for a different organism such as MERS coronavirus, but they will use the same technology and apply it rapidly now in the setting of N coronavirus. And I should add, having access to um, the virus by growth or in culture significantly improves that transition. So in Queensland, um, they have some very interesting technology which allows you to clamp the proteins of the virus that are key to generate a immune response or to make antibodies to hopefully clear the virus. And they um, can manipulate the protein from a particular virus and then clamp it into the confirmation that gives you the best immune response. So they were developing this for other viruses and now we use that te this technology for N coronavirus. And there are other groups around the world using other technologies like generating, using the DNA, um, or, um, generating DNA vaccines or RNA vaccines. So by using these platforms, you can rapidly um, transfer the technology to the new infection that you're dealing with. Let's talk about treatment for a moment. Um, there's been word from Thailand that they're using a combination of Tamiflu plus some anti-HIV, antiretrovirals. That's your area, your world authority on antiretrovirals. What's the story here? Is it, what's, how does it make sense that a drug against HIV could work against coronavirus? Yeah, this is pretty fascinating uh, work, I think. So for SARS um, and then for MERS, um, once the 
investigators could grow those viruses in the lab. They can then test panels of drugs for activity. And so often you do a, a screening uh, against a library of drugs. You know, tens of thousands of drugs can be screened. And for SARS, um, they identified a that one of the anti-HIV drugs, one specific drug actually, not a whole class of drugs, particularly dr- a particular drug trade named Kaletra or Lopinavir, had activity um, in vitro. So when you're trying to grow the virus in the lab, the drug inhibited growth. And they tested it in a non-randomised clinical trial, which has always got problems, but it looked like people did a bit better than when they didn't have that um, drug, but it was not randomised. And since that time, a lot more work's been done with MERS, and um, it looks like Lopinavir or Kaletra also has activity in vitro, at least for MERS, and some activity in vivo. But there are other antivirals that probably look a little more, bit more promising than the HIV drugs, and one of those is... Um, remdesivir, which was um, developed by Gilead and blocks the replication of RNA viruses like Ebola, MERS, SARS, and potentially um, N coronavirus. And so there's clinical trials currently happening with these um, agents. Well, we'll look with, it, with interest. Sharon, thanks for joining us on The Health Report. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Professor Sharon Lewin, who is director of the Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. Hope you can join me next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.